Welcome to the Digital Dudes Podcast. I'm David. I'm Reed. And today, Reed, we are uh, doing another one of your, I'll say your famous episodes, because you had this really cool idea about doing the POV from different stakeholders in the apartment industry. Yeah. Uh, but this one is the broker's point of view. Um, and certainly we're going to tie this back to marketing at some point, but we had Ryan Cohn on the podcast to talk through um, what it's like to be an apartment broker, um, how they approach, I'll say, buying and selling buildings these days, which is kind of fun. I, I think you and I were talking off air about it being kind of like the apartment shopper, but you're trying to buy a whole darn building instead of <laughs> a single unit uh, and what life is like. And then certainly we get into a little bit of the how marketing should or shouldn't be considered in that process. Yeah. Um, and it's these POVs, you know, you could say are a little self-serving because you and I are eager learners. We love to to find out how everything connects. Um, and I'll just say Ryan did, you know, a great job in, um, you know, kind of bring, bringing that to light for us. And I thought some of the more fascinating points and you know, you had, you had some things that you added on to, but we're just, you know, the discussions around short and long-term holds, um, you know, what, what's done or doesn't need to be done in order to maximize a property's, uh, you know, sale or, you know, uh, mm -hmm. sale price. Uh, and then it was fascinating to hear him talk, of course, through the pandemic, you know, that kind of came last, but his feelings about past, present, future, and in particular, you know, the future and, and how, uh, you know, COVID's going to affect that. So, I thought he was terrific. Uh, like I said, I don't see myself as somebody that's easily impressed, but I was impressed by Ryan. He, he's only 33, so he's still, relatively speaking, the early stage of his career. Um, but he's a wealth of information um, and just uh, came off as very strategic and somebody I know I'd want to work with if I was uh, trying to sell one of my properties. You know, I thought it was super interesting. Like, um, he basically was saying that he, for most of a customer's life, they're just ask, they're acting as a trusted consultant coming in and, and like pre-sale, post-sale, basically like building their relationship with the client, just giving a lot of feedback about what amenities they should be adding or not adding, like how much money they should be spending on X, Y, or Z, um, reviewing like um, operational costs to see if you're getting had by somebody. And so that could be for three, four, five years before you ever like really do a deal, I guess, on, where that he's going to get paid out on. But it's really more about being a trusted consultant. So he touches a lot of parts of the property. And I feel like because of that, he's got, as you said, like a wealth of knowledge on the market on, um, on how do you maximize the value of your investment and, and so forth. But, um, oh shoot, where was I going to go with that? Oh, when we were asking him what sets himself apart, I feel like he almost did himself a disservice. Like, um, you know, like, because you were, you hit him a lot on data and technology and how much that, how much has the industry changed for past, present, future. And, um, he, you know, he was like, yes, certainly it's important, uh, but data is more everywhere these days. And he almost discounted what, um, how much his access to data or his company's access to data until, until we were trying to pull it out of him. Because it does, it does seem you brought up Zillow's estimate and it's like way easier to be an apartment shopper today, <laughs> you know, or sorry, a home shopper today with Zillow's estimate to just do some perusing versus 25 years ago. And he was starting to get at that same angle when it came to apartments. But I would argue and say like, sure, a lot of people can get access to some of the data that that's public like what current market rates are or whatever for this type of asset. But how you analyze that data is I think where someone like him and his company uh, come in because it's just, um, if I went to try to go buy an apartment building today, I'd be out of my league. 
like I haven't looked at nearly as many deals as they have and and what what number may be a red flag or not. Yeah, totally. Well, it was a bold prediction, at least from my perspective, even though I understand it, I'm just piggybacking on what you just said, that his role will still be, you know, in the industry in 50 years. Um, 50 years is a long freaking time. Um, but, you know, look what has happened with Zestimate um, and Zillow, and, and really, you could just say a decade. And so I'll be curious to see that. I mean, we did talk, you know, and he was wonderful, you know, and that he was sharing pretty open about commission rates and things like that you know, what historically they had been, what they are now, and what sometimes they can get negotiated down to. Uh, but it would seem to me with more automation, you know, with the advent and now the acceleration of MI and ML, or AI and ML, that, uh, you know, he may or may not be right about that. I won't be around to know, but, uh, but it'll be interesting to see. But clearly, you know, there is incredible amount of value in, in the analysis you're talking about. Um, and, you know, we've often here lately been talking about just the experience and there's something to be said for not just a buying experience, but also the experience of going through selling something. So, uh, I think, you know, he's got obviously a great future ahead of him. Yeah. Well, I think it's a super fun conversation. We went really long. I think I was like 20 minutes into my next meeting by the time we popped off and there's still more conversation to be had, but I think it's, um, if you've never talked to a broker before, I think you'll get some, some value out of it. It probably is more dry than some of our other conversations read, like <laughs> maybe just because we're not as familiar and we were trying to like study up appropriately in the conversation and couldn't crack, make as many wisecracks. But, um, I thought there was a lot of really good info here. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. He, he drew us in pretty quickly and, you know, I'm usually the one that ends up some, somehow, some way, like inserting a dirty joke or something, you know, <laughs> to, to, disrupt the, you know, but, uh, but it never happened. You know, I kept thinking that I was like, man, I, I got to pull one of my old dad jokes out or something, but, uh, you know, we, we never got there. We did like an hour and a half and it felt like I barely blinked and it was over. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, if that sounds interesting, then stay tuned. Yeah. Okay, we're here with Ryan Cohn, who is a broker at, uh, well, I want to say Newmark, but I know it's a much longer name than that. I just keep thinking in my, na- in my head, Newmark, Ryan. So if you wouldn't mind, would you give us a little bit of your background and, and a little bit of an overview on Newmark? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Ryan Cohn. I'm an associate director for the multifamily capital markets team here in Denver for Newmark, Fra- Newmark, excuse me, Newmark Knight Frank Multifamily, formerly known as Apartment Realty Advisors before being absorbed into our new entity. Um, so we are market leaders in multifamily investment sales as well as multifamily land investment sales and uh, multifamily development equity placement. Um, my team collectively among 12 brokers, now 11 brokers, um, sold over $2.16 billion worth of inventory in 2019. And I think that that's um, the fifth or sixth consecutive year of us getting over that $2 billion number. So, you know, it's been really frothy. We've had a great um, time working through the the upswing of this market. And now we're just kind of trying to stay on top of it as um, everything recorrects through this COVID Cool. And could you walk me through, or at least us through, like what the, what life is like as a broker? Cause I know like Reed and I, we don't have a, we don't touch brokers that frequently. Uh, it, you know, if we bump into them at a networking event, sure, but that's not part of our day to day. So what's, what's life like? And is it, 
well, I guess, is it a good life as a broker? <laughs> it's a good life. I certainly enjoy it. I mean, it definitely um, requires a certain skill set, which is, in my case, being extremely type A. Um, I'm an early riser. I'm late to bed. I spend a lot of time working on, you know, getting some momentum and, and working with my clients to develop a more robust book of business, being still kind of a, a more intermediate level broker. Um, but it depends on the day. And the reason that I chose this career in the first place, is because you kind of can do a lot of, of different things and get a lot of variety in your professional diet. Um, so I come from a, a financial and, and strategic background. Um, I graduated from business school at the University of Michigan in 2009. And um, I, I love the ability to underwrite deals and, you know, use my financial and quantitative skills. But the majority of my work, I would say, is more people work. Um, interacting with the human beings that own and are trying to acquire property. Um, you know, 80% of our job is, is, is almost psychology. It's just kind of understanding what people want and, and helping them achieve it. So, you know, the first part of that is um, getting in front of people a lot of times unsolicited and convincing them why they should be talking to this person that they've never interacted with before and trying to convince them that we are, in fact, experts that they can trust. Um, so there's a lot of interpersonal work that goes along with that to kind of balance the quantitative. And, you know, our office time and my my time spent in front of a screen is balanced with getting to, you know, spend a lot of time in units, on site, in properties, walking deals, understanding the opportunity, understanding, you know, what this property is near, what its benefits are, what the drawbacks for the next owner to overcome might be. So it's it's a lot of it's a lot of variety. And that's I think what draws a lot of us to it. Um, in addition to it being relatively lucrative, if you can string a couple of deals together. Yeah. And I'm curious, like I, I think of a broker very similar to, it's just a different type of real estate agent in my mind. So you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But when it comes to real estate agents, like in the consumer world, who I might, or Reed may have touched before, um, it's very easy to get into the business, <clears throat> but obviously there's big, there's there people have to set themselves apart. Right. So like my realtor that I used was like, he's focused on mountain homes, right? Because the mountains are very different than buying a home in Littleton. And so that's where he made his niche. And that's why I trusted him. And he'd been doing it for years. It wasn't like something he did like on his lunch hour, like on the side. So is it similar for um, someone in multifamily, uh, uh, meaning from on the broker side where almost anybody can get in, but you have to find a way to set yourself apart. And then how would you, if that's true, how, how would you set yourself apart and then Newmark specifically? Yeah. You know, I, I chose commercial real estate over residential work originally when I kind of had that as an option presented to me um, just because this in investment sales particularly allowed me to flex my quantitative skills, which you don't really do as much other than running comps when you're looking at single family houses. Um, and there's a lot more emotional work that goes into residential, helping someone find a home because they have to picture their lifestyle and living in it. And it's just a little bit more touchy feely than my personality, um, a life too. So, so, so I went with this, not, not to say that there aren't feelings and emotions that go with our world as well, but it is a little bit more um, focused on the numbers and focused on the return of the investment. So there's that, that group of people is just kind of more my people, which is why I went in that direction. 
Um, but it's relatively similar. I mean, in, in that you you need to understand your clients. Um, you need to specialize, in my opinion, um, especially in a large um, MSA like Denver or or a Boulder, for example. There's just so much product that's so densely packed that you really either need to pick a location, you know, an area of representation that you want to specialize in or a type of property. You know, I know a lot of guys that sell single tenant net lease deals like the Wendy's that you get off the highway exit to, to eat at. They sell the real estate or the dirt below it. Um, and the deal might be in Oklahoma and they'll be in San Francisco selling it. So it depends on the property type. Our world and our, our practice is focused exclusively on central Denver and Colorado as a whole. Um, we sometimes find ourselves in the Rocky Mountains, like up in Bozeman or, or somewhere in Utah, et cetera. But we have affiliated offices in most major markets, which allows us to kind of keep our blinders on and focus on what we're doing here. Um, so our group has specialized, obviously, in multifamily. You know, I have two senior most partners who run the institutional book of business named Shane um, and Terrence, who work on like 200 plus um, unit deals that trade, you know, in the Blackstone, Graystar kind of world of large owners. My teammates and I, Justin Hunt, Andy Hellman, Spencer Bradley, and I work with private capital clients throughout the market. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're working on a certain size deal. Typically caps out around 120, 150 unit type deals before we start seeing institutional clientele starting to kick around in the pool of um, buyers and sellers. But we work with um, proprietary owners. We work with people who are, you know, ranging from mom and pop groups that own four to 12 units all the way to family offices um, like lower end private equity groups who own, you know, over a thousand units locally or over 12,000 units nationwide who still, you know, are you know, a family enterprise who don't have a board of decision makers who it still comes back to kind of a couple of key figureheads at the office who are, who are making those calls. So um, that's my client base and that's how we've specialized. Um, and that's, yeah. that's, uh, yeah, that's my well, response. Well, my next follow-up, but, um, and I know Reed's going to have some questions here because I already feel like I almost want to ask his question for him, uh, but I have one last thing before I'll pass it to him. So it sounds like it's still super relationship based, but I can imagine that working with uh, working underneath a firm like like Newmark that um, you guys see so many more deals. And so what could set what would help set you guys apart, I would imagine, is is more of the consultative. I'm just projecting here, but I imagine that you almost do a lot of consultant work where you're helping review for owners like, shoot, are your utilities high? Or, um, you know, is, the, um, you know, are there other market conditions, legal things that you should be considering for this deal or for your current deal that I know you're not in the market to sell, but were you aware where you're building that credibility long term and being with a larger firm helped, helps you see more of that and have more experience, just like I'm sort of projecting based on the experience we had when we went with a commercial broker to find our office space is like, like even after the deal's done, he's there to help us like review and make sure that our uh, operating expenses are in line and that there's no problem. So I'm sure you're building much longer term relationships that way. And we try to do that. We try to make sure that we're doing more than one transaction with any given group. You know, we're sellers agents. We represent in our fiduciary duties to the seller in any given transaction. But I'm hopeful to sell a deal to a buyer in a way that they will hopefully hire me again to resell it in five, seven or 10 years if that's their 
hold period that they're planning to dispose after. So, you know, we we owe our fiduciary to our sellers, but a, a transaction can only be closed when both parties feel that they're getting a good deal. Um, so it's very personal work in that sense. Um, forgive me, remind me what you just asked me. <laughs> Oh, I, there was no ask there. I was just thinking that it was probably a lot more consultative, long-term stuff that you guys are getting. Yeah, um, thank you. I just needed a quick poke in the right direction. The majority of the work that we're doing is advisory work, and most of it's done for free in the hopes that we're building a relationship and a level of trust that they believe what they're telling him. And a lot of that work, um, you know, we do that doesn't necessarily develop into a deal. And we're still, of course, happy to do it in those situations because to your point, it helps us understand um, the market as a whole. And um, to your point earlier, we do see almost every major, I would say a hundred unit and plus deal that prospectively to be marketed around here that isn't sold directly without our, our advanced knowledge of it. And even though I personally might not be touching all of those deals, and I'm really focused on, say, two to $10 million opportunities personally, in addition to supporting my senior partners, all of those comparable rents, all of those um, P&L sheets, all of those financials from all of those deals are going into our server, which I and my research team, that institutional team and little old me all share. Um, that institutional knowledge all flows through all of us. Um, and our team is kind of unique among local brokers in that we all kind of have our size range of what deal types we go after. We all kind of have a certain part of town that we focus on. So we don't step on each other's feet very often. We make a point of collaborating as much as possible. And that makes the transfer of information within our office easy. Um, you know, whereas some of our friendly competitors are more, you know, this broker runs his book, this broker runs his book, and the broker two doors down in the same office runs his book. And they don't necessarily touch base on what they're finding out in the market unless it's mutually beneficial for both of them. Um, so that can slow things down a little bit. I chose the firm that I, I now work with specifically so that as a new broker in a new market, I had access to all of that data. Um, we have a really robust database that goes back 30 plus years in Denver, just tracking everything from rents and, and where, you know, current amenities and concessions are being offered and built, as well as what's being built in terms of units coming online in the last two years and what's prospectively being proposed to be built in the following two years. You know, so we're not just focusing on the snapshot of what's happening now for our clients, but we're also kind of able to help them look, you know, down, down the line and to the horizon of what's coming next. Um, so having all of that in the same office has been really beneficial for me personally, and it benefits our clients as well because we're providing them more perfect information in terms of our evaluative power to them. So, so yeah, it, it's great to have all of that kind of flowing through our office. Um, and we do pride ourselves on having the best access to information in Denver for sure. Oh, yeah, that makes, um, I can only imagine, I mean, we see the same thing in our own business, right? That if the more campaigns we have, the more data we have access to, which it means the more we can start to make good inferences and, and uh, advice for people. But uh, Reed, I, before I go into more about the deal cycle, I uh, want to give you a chance to ask a few things. Yeah, well, lots of interesting, I guess, 
points here to explore, but I'm curious as you were talking through things to hear more about the proper, the relationship maybe between the property type and the investor. Um, so being that you mostly work with private capital, two to $10 million. Um, and we had some of these conversations, David, with a couple of our portfolios where we got a chance to hear more about, I guess, the, the deals that they were exploring and, and the type of investors they liked working with. Um, so, uh, wondering like, um, you know, are they predominantly like this investor is going to be focused on this property type, like class A is what they like to invest in, or is it more commonly diversified where it's like, you know, you'll see this, I mean, most investors work with B, A, and even affordable. Um, they just, they like having that, or is it more linear, like I said? And then um, as far as the number of investors that you typically work with to get these deals done, um, what does that look like? Is And does that also have a relationship with the property type? So, you know, we've heard about, you know, those newcomers, right? Like maybe it's a, a dentist that's starting to, you know, franchise out and, you know, now has some discretionary money and is looking for a place to park it. Um, and then after you share that, because I have a lot of kind of questions that build on that, uh, I'd love to hear... Um, more about the the expectations, like setting those expectations, using the data to do that. Because I imagine, you know, if I'm that dentist, just using that as an example, and it's like, I'm trying to figure out where to park this, and I bump into multiple brokers that are in multifamily, it's very easy, you know, um, to get, I guess, kind of uh, attracted or, um, I don't want to say confused, but, you know, from one broker to the next, it's like, we think we can do 7% over five to seven years. We think we could do 20%, whatever. I mean, I'm sure that that is a huge part of winning deals where you have to try and bring them back to reality, but still make sure that they're excited and motivated enough to do the deal. But if you don't mind, just start with some of those relationships, um, you know, between investor and property type. Yeah, absolutely. So we, again, we typically represent the sellers. We act as the seller's agents most of the time, which is how we come into most transactions. Obviously, we have to win the business of that seller. But, um, you know, most of my clients, in fact, 100% of them are multifamily owners. Perhaps they own some other types of commercial property in their portfolio. Um, but that's obviously how we come into working together. But within the buyer pool and people that we see right now looking at our deals, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a spread depending on what it is. But we definitely see certain groups of buyers um, particularly when you get into the more sophisticated side of buyers having a pretty specific set of acquisition requirements that they try to keep to. Um, private capital that isn't like put into a fund doesn't typically have the same like very restrictive, we need it to be built after 1975 or built after 1995 and this many units and this much parking ratio type of stuff. But you do still obviously see people who are looking for kind of a particular thing. Um, I have clients who are looking to buy exclusively post 2000 built new construction product that they're not going to have to worry about the old, you know, radiator heat systems or the old boiler system or anything of that nature. I also have um, a, a very large amount of clients who like that vintage property, who don't mind the fact that their gas is going to be master meter and they have to build back for utilities and do some, you know, more old school things for older school properties, but they like those classic elements and understand that a lot of uh, tenants value that as well. 
Um, especially here in Denver, we've noticed that kind of like the classic elements, those radiators, well-maintained, you know, good woodwork that's been upgraded and, and kept in place from when it was built around the turn of the century. Those little style points really go far with millennial renters. And, you know, I, I don't want to call the people hipsters, but I would say people that kind of value the style points of where they're living and classic elements, um, you know, and restora restoration of classic community elements. So, so all of that kind of, uh, there's a lid for every pot in our world. Um, I typically tend to see buyers broken up by the size of what they can take down. So people will typically, the first and, and largest, you know, obstacle for, for us to identify and overcome is what are you capable of in terms of what you can acquire? And once you get into, obviously, okay, I can afford one to $3 million worth of products, then you start to look at, you know, do you want a higher unit count in a more tertiary part of town? Or are you willing to pay a bigger number per door for those bigger rents to be city center right at Colfax and Logan, for example, or Colfax and Broadway? So, you know, those are kind of the decisions that go into a buyer's mind. We tend to cast a pretty wide net in terms of what we're sending to buyers because sometimes, you know, someone will say, I want a building that hasn't been built before 1980 and I'll sell, send them something that was built 1978 and maybe we have a conversation. So I, my job is to share opportunities with the market as a whole. And, you know, if somebody comes back and says this isn't really it, you know, we'll get them on the next one. And that's about as good as we do getting the word out. But um, but yeah, I mean, people tend to refine their requirements for purchase um, by price range, um, by location and um, by whether or not it's stable or value add in terms of who they are as an owner, whether they're looking for something just to kind of park some family cash or whether they're looking for something that they can kind of gut the units and put in the new countertops and cabinets and, and stainless steel appliances and really push the rents themselves to realize a bigger return on their investment that way. Yeah, super helpful. Um, is there a common life cycle like with multifamily owners that you, you see like um, as far as like an evolution where it's like you start here and then, you know, you just continue to build up and then you diversify or do you find that it doesn't actually work out that way? They like staying, they find a sweet spot and they stick to it. You know, just curious as somebody, you know, if somebody stays in multifamily, um, ownership for 15, 20 years, if there is yeah, common kind of progression? Yeah, there are a couple of different ways that you can kind of grow as an owner, assuming that you don't come from a large amount of just family money or capital that you have to place on day zero. You know, the way that we see people kind of grow as owners is you grow from either buying smaller deals to trading out of those smaller deals and perform what's called a 1031 like-kind tax exchange to avoid paying um, the taxes on the, the capital gains and the recapture of depreciation on the sale of that deal um, and transferring all the proceeds of that sale into a hopefully larger or better deal um, that's also a commercial residential investment property. So, you know, you buy a fourplex, you run it for two years, you gain the rents, and at the end of that two years, or three years, or five years, or 10 years, you take the money um, that you've earned as well as going through the process of selling that property and taking all the proceeds and putting them together and buying, say, a 12-unit deal. 
And then in three years from then, you can kind of do the same thing, ideally, where you're selling the 12 unit, which is, you know, referred to commonly as, quote, the down leg of the year 1031, and then, quote, up legging into a larger property the same way. So you can go from four units, 12 units to 22 units, hopefully to 50 units. And that's a path that you can take. The other path is to build a portfolio that you plan to hold long term, which we see as well, and just continuously trying to put together funds for new acquisitions without disposing of previous ones, which typically assuming, again, that you don't have a bunch of money that you're just sitting on means that you're buying a fourplex and then a fourplex, maybe a sixplex and kind of cobbling together a portfolio of smaller properties that way. And maybe someday you sell them and leg up into something that you can put an on-site manager and a leasing agent in, you know, 50, 60 units plus. Or maybe um, you're recapitalizing and you're working with a lender to refinance that property, pull money out of it without selling it, Um, which is probably my biggest competitor, honestly, more than the other brokers in this market is the opportunity to refinance and recapitalize without transacting Um, and moving forward with your new proceeds that way. So, so there are a couple of ways that you can kind of grow your portfolio, um, but that's typically the way that we see people build is either by um, 1031 exchanging out of properties into bigger properties or slowly building a portfolio, whether it's with their own money or through syndicating deals where they're the general partner and they're building a, a group of, of equity people in the limited position that are supporting them financially and guaranteed, say, a 6% return on their investment after you recoup finances, et cetera. Cool. David, I got one more and then I'll uh, throw it back to you. I, I'm curious to hear, and this is kind of tangential, I guess, to uh, the you know, setting expectations, but is like the risk gradient, um, you know, within multifamily, like how that compares to other verticals. So I didn't know how much you guys find yourselves, like, is the decision already made? I'm, I'm coming into multifamily or do you often have to kind of compete, let's just say with other, you know, verticals that they, they might be interested in investing in, which then obviously gets into what these returns look like, you know, short, long-term, I mean, all sorts of things are kind of inside of that. And then I'm curious, still staying with kind of this risk gradient, what that looks like inside a multifamily, you know, if there's a pretty, you know, significant Delta or if there isn't huge changes. Cause I, you know, I'm used to just like, I mean, no different than index funds or, you know, playing the stock market or whatever. It's like high risk, high reward, you know? And so are those same opportunities like pretty clear, like inside a multifamily. But first question is, you know, do you often or, well, whatever, regularly have to talk through um, clients that have other opportunities or is it already a done deal? It's like, you're already a multifamily owner. This is, you know, we don't have to be bothered by any of that kind of outside uh, distraction. Yeah. I mean, whether or not they own other asset classes of property, whether they have retail in their portfolio or industrial or office in their portfolio. Most of my conversations are geared towards multifamily just because I am a specialist of that nature. But assuming for a second that I and my colleagues at Newmark Knight Frank who specialize in those other asset classes were to sit down collectively at a table with a shared client who owned all of those things, you know, we probably have to break up that conversation into different portions of like, all right, let's talk about your office. Let's talk about your multifamily. Let's talk about your Detail, just because the approaches are so very different in the world, especially now post pandemic or mid pandemic, 
the, the spread of the risks and rewards and the ability to get financing for all of those different property types is really is really vast and different right now. Um, we, when we're having conversations with somebody who owns a variety of property um, or say a mixed use deal where there's like 40 units upstairs and there's retail on the first floor all in the same parcel, all owned and operated by the same operator, we typically will bring in guys at our office who are retail specialists so that we uh, they are providing as um, as expert level information as we are on multifamily. Um, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier and that, you know, we wouldn't, it, I wouldn't ask an office broker to make a recommendation on the multifamily next door. And, and, you know, geographic location doesn't really affect, um, you know, two, two different property types on the same block are, have very different outlooks and have very different, you know, operation strategies just, you know, based on what they are. Um, going further than that, you know, we um, we spend a lot of time working through the maybes with a seller, which I think kind of goes into your next question, which is we spend a lot of time working with people before they've made the decision to sell or as they're making the decision on what to do next. And, you know, our, our, our position, again, is really to act as a, a strategic advisor to kind of guide them through that. And we hope that they'll do something with us when the time comes. But we also in our on our team have a capital markets team, which specializes in, in sourcing debt for, for multifamily as well. So as I kind of mentioned earlier, my biggest competitor in getting a deal sold is a lot of times not, you know, the other brokers that are competing for that listing, but it's the owner's knowledge that debt is so readily available at such an affordable rate right now because of where, you know, federal, uh, the, the Fed has kept um, interest rates and Jerome Powell having promised that that won't change for at least the next, I think, 16 months um, from today. Um, you know, we try to be sure that we're bookending a prospective client with both opportunities to refinance with us or to list with us. Um, but furthermore, you know, we try to just provide them with the most accurate information we possibly can to make their decision. And then, you know, what they do from there is totally up to them. David, can I <laughs> ask one more? Why not? <laughs> Well, uh, comparing this actually to single family, and as we're talking through a little bit more about, uh, you know, again, expect expectations, um, you know, you have like Zillow, for example, right? And David and I, you know, laugh, but don't like where, how much that's now influenced, you know, a buyer's expectations. And 10 years ago, it was like the Zestimates wildly off, you know, and, and brokers were regular real estate agents were like, that's bullshit. You know, you don't need like, don't pay attention to that. That's not real world, but that's changed and they've closed the gap. Um, you know, kudos to them, but it didn't know, um, you know, when you're dealing with owners and, and trying to walk them through or prepare them for sale, like whether they already have heavy, like kind of, uh, predetermined expectations based on some other like third party. Um, or if you predominantly are shaping that for them, cause I'm sure obviously when they get into it and especially if they've been in it, they already have some expectation of what they should, they should expect you know, what, what the return's going to look like. But, but then when the rubber meets the road and they get towards the end of this deal, like, you know, if you're having to deal with any of that kind of interference and how aligned are you typically at the beginning of what they, they can expect? I mean, is it, you know, yeah. So. 
Yeah, you know, we every every person who is prospectively selling a deal knows what they bought the deal for, and they know how they're operating it typically, unless they have a third party manager and they, you know, live somewhere else and they just trust the people that they have operating on their behalf. Um, and if they're and if they have kind of a pulse on the market, they're seeing uh, they're seeing our and our friendly competitors sending them new deals and new opportunities and they're also hopefully keeping an eye on where the deals around theirs that are on market are selling for and transacting for so they kind of have a ballpark idea of a general market feel but uh dissimilar to single family the the differences in a multifamily property the spectrum of what you can find inside of a multifamily deal is just so much more broad um, and the potential so much more vast um, than a single family deal. And, and I, I guess the couple of examples that I would give in that sense is, you know, every single family house, you know, you can look at it from the outside and see if it has a one or two car garage. You can pull up the square footage and whether or not there's a finished basement. And you can look at the photos. Um, which have been provided to you, which hopefully provides a pretty good feel. It's harder to do that in a 300-unit property or even in a 40-unit property because you have 40 individual tenants who live in those units. And you also, as the landlord, can't tell those tenants, you can't instruct them how clean or how to live um, in your units. So you have to obviously, and, and also it would be extremely time constraining to take every prospective buyer through every one of those 40 units. So we, on our end, before we present it to market, do our best to get an idea of what the unit mix is, what the unit square footages are, what the age of the mechanical and the plumbing and what type of electrical is in there, what kind of, what level of power, whether it's 70, 70 amps or 100 amps or in those really old buildings, sometimes 20 or just 30 amps of power, um, which is the difference between being able to run a dishwasher and a hairdryer at the same time or not. Um, and all of those little things that you kind of don't focus on as much on your own home when you're looking at an investment property and all of the potential things that could go wrong or that could require upfront investment for you in the first three to five years of your ownership, there's just a lot more boxes to check. Um, so it is a lot more difficult, I would say, to look at a multifamily or any investment opportunity from the streets and be able to assess it to the same ability that you might be able to um, a single family home in a residential suburb, just because they are by nature considerably more unique, the commercial properties that is. Um, so so it's, it's, it's quite a different approach. Um, well, you had mentioned something just a second ago about um, almost like, uh, I'll say advising someone, right? So like, it, you're on the sell. It sounds like you guys prefer to get the seller, not the buyer. Or, I mean, you'll, I'm sure you'll help buyers, but on the seller. So what's the typical timeline? Are you like advising someone? Maybe I could imagine you like surveying the market. You have someone that you've worked with before. You're like, hey, whoa, they may be able to pull out like a 25% gain of this property right now and then roll that into something else. And so you might come to someone and say like, hey, did you know, um, by the way, if I look at your asset, we could do a couple things over six months that would actually take this to like a 32% like return for you. So is that true? Is that is that a fair, I don't know, story or what's the typical 
Absolutely. Yeah, we the, the sooner a prospective seller comes to us prior to the required timing for a transaction, which is typically triggered by having a debt maturity issue or something happening among the partners or just something happening internally among the ownership party, whether it's outlook or whether it's something, you know, actually functionally internally that's triggering a prospective sale. And if they come to us to chat you know, six to 12 months before we need to start marketing the property and give us access to the financials as well as to walking the property and actually understanding it, um, which is a big part of our process. Being able to see and, and, and understand and stand in a unit really goes considerably far um, versus just looking at, at the paper. Um, on a property. Um, and the more time we have to do that, the more time we have to advise and make recommendations for improvements. Um, and a lot of the time, they're relatively simple. You know, they're not things like you need to go install, you know, new this, or you need to go and repave this parking lot. It's really more of, um, you know, a little bit of touch up paint here would go a long way or just replacing some of these little things that you haven't thought to replace during your own period of ownership. You know, the little stuff goes a long way. And um, just in terms of recommending what they should be marketing any prospective vacant units for so that if they are signing any new leases between now and when we're selling the deal, they're giving that buyer a new tenant at a rent that is on par with what we think that unit should be renting for on market. All of those little things go really far when it comes time to sell. And yeah. the market process itself is typically about four months. You know, once somebody signs the listing agreement and we have, you know, a good idea of where the property is and what it is, typically, you know, if we were to sign a listing agreement on January 1st, hopefully by January 15th, two weeks later, we have all of the materials gathered and we have um, completed all of our materials, our offering memoranda, and put together all of the data that we want to share with the market um, to go out by the end of January that first month. Typically, we market for about four weeks, maybe six. We call for offers um, at the end of that period, and we typically take about a week after that to negotiate with the best prospective buyers out of that Original, that initial call for offers. We'll finalize an offer from there. And from that's about two and a quarter or one and a quarter months in. And then it takes about four weeks for due diligence, typically about 30 days, and hopefully 30 days to close, maybe a little bit longer if they take some time to get their financing or something comes up that requires an extension with the period. So that's about 3.9 months right there. Um, which is, you know, just from the moment we sign the listing agreement. And typically, in a perfect world, if I can get six months of advance notice in front of that from the prospective seller, that's a, a more than enough time for my team and I to get in and make our recommendations and give the operator the time to make whatever corrections of the property and do whatever they need to do to get it in line for our for our process to begin on time. Yeah, well, that's... Um... Yeah, that that's painting a clearer picture. And what you mentioned about, um, hey, well, maybe we could get a few more tenants in here. We could get rents up to this point on the on the next, let's say, ten tenants that move in or whatever. That's going to help the value, you know, x x amount, right? And so that's where um, I feel like we're often in the dark on the marketing side. So um, 
we now will start to get a, a feel like if someone starts really pushing budget on us when they're already basically stabilized, you know, then we're like, okay, well then you're probably angling for a sell. Uh, and so we probably know you have four months before, you know, you're going to pull that property out. Cause it, it's funny. It lines up similarly with your, with your timeline there. Um, but if we were able to know that even further in advance or, sometimes people don't, it's, it's almost like a surprise. They, they don't push any budget. And then all of a sudden, like we sold the property. Uh, but if we knew that in advance, we could probably help them where it's like, Hey, look, you may overspend a little bit right now on some of your marketing costs, but it's going to help drive the value of the property up by X, right. By doing that. Cause maybe, maybe we're going to try to push rents another couple points than, than you would have otherwise, if you're just trying to get the best return right now, cause you're more looking at the sale. So I think that would be for us, something that we could do uh, a better job of getting in with our clients and saying, the more you can keep us in, in the light here about what the, what the plan is, the more we can actually um, advise you like when to push a little bit harder on, on some of those marketing budgets or platforms. Yeah. Yeah. So the big, one of the biggest hurdles that I probably see most frequently with sellers is they are fearful to let the cat out of the bag of what they're thinking of doing um, because they're afraid of, you know, the implications a lot of times of the interpersonal effects of what it means. And I think uh, sellers are a lot of times afraid to tell their tenants what they're doing because they don't want the tenants to, you know, anticipate a rent increase or a new owner who's just going to come in and try to squeeze blood from the stone, which, by the way, isn't really the case most of the time. Um but more importantly for you guys, I think that a lot of times operators and owners are afraid to share their plan with a property manager or with a team that's helping them market vacant space because they're afraid that that uh, service provider is going to take that to mean that this this job, effectively this site of working on, is going to be taken away from them and that there might be friction in doing that which we very rarely see. I mean, with a professional management group and, and groups like yours, you know, everybody who works as a service provider in commercial real estate, ultimately our goal is to serve the owner and the operator. And the more information we're provided and trusted with, the better we can do that. The only way for us to overcome that hurdle collectively as service providers, in my opinion, is to build the trust, that level of trust and personal relationship with that owner. Um, so that they have a level of confidence that you are a professional, that you have enough irons in the fire and enough plates spinning that um, you understand the nature of ownership of real estate isn't necessarily a perpetual thing for everybody. And some people do hold for a stated term and sell. And that's just the nature of the business. Um, so I think that, you know, prospectively, as long as you guys, when you're talking to people, maybe in the outset or earlier in the process, maybe before they even mentioned it to you, letting them know, you know, we can help you with disposition services and positioning for disposition. You just have to let us in. And obviously, we're going to work with you full time and to the um, to the extent of our ability throughout the entire term of your ownership until the papers are signed and the transaction is closed at the title office. Because I think there's a level of fear that, you know, the manager or the marketing group or whoever it is gets that 30-day termination notice from the seller, like, all right, I'm selling. We're done here. The hope, you know, and I think that most clients should understand this, is we treat every job like a pitch for the next job in addition to the job that we're working on now. So, you know, my 
how I interact with you throughout the term of your ownership is hopefully going to predicate how we interact on the next deal. And, you know, again, most people, unless they're at the end of their term of ownership, whether they're retiring or moving on to the next um, equity opportunity, you know, typically when somebody's selling a deal, they're probably buying something else with that money because most people understand that having a big lump of cash sitting in your bank account is considerably less valuable than having cash flow on a perpetual basis. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, that's a great perspective. Um, I'm going to move a little bit back into Reed's question. So he was talking about Zillow and how you can just like, you know, with single family, like uh, basically keep a good feel in the market. It sounds like what what you're saying, Ryan, is that you almost rely or owners today almost rely more on their broker to do that versus and maybe some like um, some like minor paying attention to, to deals in the, in the area, but it's different obviously because the deal, the deal flow is just not as heavy as it is in single family where you might have 10 or 12 homes in a neighborhood, you know, turn over in a summer. Right. So there's not as, uh, well, it's just not probably as easy to get a good handle on it. So what I'm getting to with, as I tee up, I'll say reads questions, but, um, he read, you will often ask like, um, on a, on a one to 10 scale, how folks, how they believe they're utilizing data and technology. So I'm curious, like when it comes to the broker angle, if that's changed a lot in your view, and then uh, obviously I'll, I'll parlay this into uh, the question that we both like, but past, present, and future. What, what yeah. I almost started with that, but I couldn't help. I had too many other questions after I heard Ryan's first thread. So uh, glad you're bringing it back to past, present, future. Well, I've, got, I've got lots of time this afternoon so we can get through all of it. <laughs> But um, in terms of technology, I mean, the, 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 the major MLS commercially nationwide uh, in my entire time of ownership, and I believe prior to the Internet era, era when they were still delivering like hard CD-ROM discs on a weekly basis to brokers back in the day is CoStar. Um, and CoStar and the group that the equity group that own it also now own LoopNet, which is kind of like the prosumer, like bridging the gap between pay that multi-thousand dollar per quarter membership for CoStar and people who just kind of want to poke around for end user space or whatever it is. Um, you can find typically any listing that's on CoStar on LoopNet and vice versa. And that group also now owns 10X, um, which is an auction platform. So that's all kind of under the same roof. But we all kind of joke that because we're all we're all friendly with each other, but we are truly all competitors in my broker market is that it's very hard to get good, perfect information on a site that's fed by everyone and also no one <laughs> in that, you know, we they they track the county deed of registers. And, you know, if you're tracking deals within there, they have good information. But sometimes they'll have a 22 unit listed as an 18 unit or condos will be posted as apartments, stuff like that. So I would say that, you know, the technology is all about 60 to 70 percent accurate. And it really, you know, our market and, and commercial real estate worldwide is just naturally such a fragmented market. Um, that you really do need somebody who's who, who you trust to be interacting with on deals, um, you know, or you need to be registered and working with buyers who are selling deals who you trust to buy deals from. You don't necessarily need a buyer's representative. You just need to be interacting with people who, when they tell you what they're saying as far as a sales pitch and why this deal is so great, you need to believe them. Um, and that's really what that comes down to. Yeah, um, so then past, present, future on tech? Past, I would say that um, brokers pre-internet and way predating my career um, are much more used to being the gatekeepers of the information. 
and to being kind of a necessary bottleneck in the process where you have to come to me. It's more of a position of power. I would say that a broker in 1975 has considerably more power over holding the information than a broker does today or in 2025 in the future, just because of the internet and of the world being so much flatter than it was then. And that goes back to kind of what I was saying in terms of we really act more now as advisors than brokers in terms of I, I give a lot of free I give a lot of free advice. I'm happy to do it. Um, and we try to kind of put deals together that way. But um, the present, I would say, is kind of a mix of being advisory and being really up on your market. So, I mean, there is obviously databasing and, and having quantitative um, knowledge of the market, but that really comes again from seeing as many deals as you can and interacting with as many owners and operators as you can. So you're seeing, you know, what they're running their properties for, what they're quoting rents, what kind of concessions they're offering to new tenants and all of that good stuff. So I would say that um, the commercial broker will be very difficult to replace by automation, for sure. Um, I'm pretty confident that my role will still exist in 20 or 50 years. Um, whether or not it exists as it does today, it's hard to say. But the way that we get our information is kind of a mixture of, I would say, probably 25% technology and going to the county assessor's website and pulling info from GIS systems and all that good stuff. But probably about 75%, you know, pounding pavement and hitting the phones. It's really much more, you know, in person, going to see the properties, walking units, interacting with owners. That's really the best way to get information. And, you know, there are, there are, um, there are sites like Apartment Insights and Axiometrics and Yardy Matrix who do an incredible job of tracking rents and transaction information and all of that good stuff. But those technologies are still only as good as the workforce they have refreshing those analyses and those research databases. So data in my market moves faster than every 30 days. And even, you know, those firms that have research analysts who are calling regularly to get updates on, okay, what are you quoting for right now? What's a one cost? What is a two bedroom cost, et cetera, et cetera. By the time you get off the phone, that information might have changed. So only going to these websites for information gives you, I would say, a good ballpark feel. But if you really want to get out of kind of the bird's eye view and get a more on the street approach, you really need to be there yourself or have a representative you trust actually physically interacting with the market. And yeah, then well, future, um, you know, it's hard to say, but I think that we're going to see ourselves um, continuously pivot into that role of advisory. Um, I'm not sure what that means from a compensation perspective, um, just similar to single family where there's kind of a market norm of what the commission should be. We typically work on more of a sliding scale so that, you know, if we were to charge 3% on a $200 million deal, we're not getting paid some exorbitant commission, although I wish we could. It's just not something we see often. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens um, as technology continues to build, you know, you're seeing the red fins of the world and all of these companies that are in the single family world starting to kind of push sellers reps a little bit out of the nest a little bit in terms of, okay, why would you sell this, pay this person 2.8 or 3% when we'll do it for 1% or a, you know, a, a just a stated um, fee. Um, and I think that 
I don't I, I can't speak to whether or not that process is equally successful to working with a Keller Williams or a Remax or a Sotheby's agent. I, I really don't know. But I, I think that it would be very difficult for someone to try to hire a bunch of warm bodies and give them a template for how to underwrite deals and multifamily or any commercial property type and just kind of let them get after it. I think that, you know, you would be pretty sorely disappointed by the level of representation you get in kind of a more cookie cutter manner in the world that we live in or I live in professionally. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, but I we're, we're not super worried about technology taking our jobs. I'm excited to see how it continues to benefit us. We internally definitely do a lot of mapping and a lot of stuff that makes it easier, easier for clients to visualize the market. Um, and where deals lie compared to one another, compared to um, employment hubs or places of recreation, et cetera. So we've tried to continuously use it to our advantage um, in terms of how we're underwriting and researching deals. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 10 years for sure. Yeah. Reed, I'm well, sure you have some follow-ups. Yeah, well, I was going to get at the commission, so I'm glad that that you got there first, Ryan. But you mentioned it, it could be a very lucrative living, which I certainly would expect. Um, and I was curious, as it comparable to single family as far as the, the commission, and then you already got in front of the, the scenario where it's, you know, whatever you said, $20 million, you know, that there's certain caps in place to protect. Um, but uh, that made me then think about mar margin compression for us and our industry has been a result of the not just advent, of course, but the you know explosion of technology, uh, data and automation like um, that all kind of converging because now and it's natural. And frankly, we could be probably pressed on this even more from our own clients. But we Dave and I often will talk about other categories where this is far, far more matured, where it's like we we know that you know, 80% of what is happening is, is happening through technology automation, not your team. And yet you're still trying to charge us the same, you know, management fees that, that you were 10 years ago. And so I, when I was at the post, I, I would run in the ad department before we started this company. And I remember trying to explain that trend to our CEO. And I just said, Hey, you know, while everybody's looking at digital, especially in the media world, as the panacea of the solution, like this has to, you know, this is a transition we're going to make and this is where you're going to start making your money. Um, it's such a commoditized space. I was like, and with technology and the automation, all of this is actually going to be driving the margins down. You may still see the top line, but you're going to see the margins driven down. So, you know, comparing that to what you were just talking about, it, it would seem on some level that, you know, as data and, and technology continues to evolve and mature, that you might have some of those same kind of challenges, I guess, or questions like, you know, how much of this work is really you, Ryan, versus like what's already available or what tools you're using. We obviously, we often point, and we just had to, because we just made a, a modest, I'll say, rate increase. Um, but our overhead has gone up because we're investing on their behalf. And that's one of the ways we handle that is, you know, we're, we are using this data. We're not asking you to buy it. We're using this technology and we're using it better, frankly, than you would. And so that's part of the reason why we're maintaining in some cases, even uh, growing or increasing our management fee. So I don't know if you have anything uh, to add there. Kind of this is still with the past, present, future, whether you think that you'll be able to hold those you know, 3% um, or whether you would anticipate some margin, not margin, but commission compression. And, you know, as you talk 1975, was it, you know, 
10% and now it's 3% or has that been where it's been at for the last, you know, whatever, two, uh, two or three decades? Yeah. Um, you know, I can only speak to the last seven years professionally, but it does seem from what the older dogs in the office would tell me that um, not only in the Internet era has our ability to kind of gatekeep the information kind of decreased collectively as brokers, but also, um, you know, the normalization of fees, et cetera, and people having a little bit more um, street level knowledge of what things should be. Um, but again, you know, we really, from the seller's side aspect, I would find it very difficult to believe that anybody would list with someone who isn't a local market expert, um, like a national firm that didn't have like a local someone who had some sort of a track record in that market. Um, I would say that buyer representation has almost gone away. Um, and I don't know if that was something that existed before my time, but especially in our world, in the investment sales world, as the seller's agents, when we're listing property, we typically look to the buyer pool and we select from it, not only on terms of who's offering the best price in terms, but in terms of who we believe is the most capable of actually getting a deal done and who we have the most confidence in actually getting a deal done. Um, so you know, working with a buyer's agent can be kind of a double-edged sword and that if you don't have the experience to go out and look at deals yourself, you should have somebody advising you in that regard. But it also is very difficult as a buyer's representative, being that all of our seller's deals are available through the internet and pretty easily searchable by the, the buyer themselves from their home office or from their own desk. It's difficult as a buyer's rep to kind of get in the middle of that and justify a commission. So I am admittedly tough on buyer's representatives because I would hope, especially in a market with as many good buyers as Denver, um, that somebody would be able to and have the sophistication as a buyer to approach a deal themselves. Um, and that's really the side of the ticket that I think has gotten hit a little bit harder is tenant representatives, buyer representatives, people that are going out and looking to acquire space or use new lease space, et cetera. I think that there's an idea from the consumer, you know, you might be able to speak to this, you know, as the quote widget maker who was looking for office space not so long ago. It's easy to pull up on LoopNet a search of available space. But a lot of times you'll see like office space available one to 48,000 square feet. And you don't know how the space is broken up. And it's almost slightly intentionally made in a way that we want you to come to us through a professional because we don't want to give you the real estate 101. In the investment sales world, you know, if you're coming to us to buy a multi-million dollar deal, you didn't just find that money on the sidewalk earlier that day. And we do have a certain level of assumption that you as an individual and a relatively intellectual person are savvy enough to do the deal. Um, so I would say that the buyer's representatives have gotten squeezed a little bit by the availability of finding listings online um, and the ability to reach out directly to the listing agents. We on our side haven't seen it as much. Um, it's not to say that it won't happen, but my biggest um my the, the times when I tend to take um, lower commissions are typically when I'm competing for a listing with, say, three or four of my other competitive, um, you know, my friendly competitors in this market. And one of them says, I'll do it for X. And, you know, the seller or the prospective seller likes my proposal better and likes the way that we've framed how we think we would transact on the opportunity. 
but will come back to us and say, hey, I really want to work with you, but will you do it for 2% instead of 3 because this person said they'll do it for 2%. And our answer is usually yes, um, unless that other person is um, like somebody who works out of the trunk of their car, um, which isn't typical among my competitive set. So that's kind of the way that my compre- my commissions get compressed. But, you know, at the end of the day, whatever we're making on most deals is enough for it to be worth our time. And again, I treat every opportunity like it's not only one transaction, but an opportunity to hopefully go find two more just by all of the people that I'm interacting with through that marketing process. So, you know, my my network of trying to build a book of business is really built through the spider web of just conversations of talking about new opportunities. Um, so we try not to be greedy. Um, and again, that, you know, as advisors, we tend to do a lot of work for free just to get past that first hurdle of can I trust this guy and does he know what he's talking about? Um, and we're happy to do it. We just um, you got to plant a lot of seeds and do a lot of deals in order to make it work. And uh, we do try to keep our plate full for sure. Yeah. Reminds me of the expression my dad always says, uh, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, right? <laughs> you say it all the time at the office. It's very yeah. common phrase. <laughs> Um, one more question. I'll pass it back to David, but, uh, I'm surprised I would have lost a bet if I had said that we would have gotten almost an hour into this conversation and not hit COVID. Um, so you talked, you know, past, present, future, this is obviously a present. So I'll use, uh, you know, knowing that the Perseid shower just wrapped up, um, or at least it's peak, um, is COVID an asteroid or a meteorite, um, you know, for, for you and your world and how much has it potentially, I guess, protracted some, you know, as you mentioned, like the hold, you know, uh, where this is going to prolong that for, for many multifamily investors, uh, as they have to play a longer game versus the, the short sale. So we did hear, I heard just recently from, uh, you know, uh, portfolio up in Minneapolis, funny enough, they were just saying, you know, it hasn't actually been as big of a disruption as we expected. Still a lot of development, still a lot of deals going on. Um, but what has happened is some of the folks, and maybe it would be some of your your more common clients that you know are working with private capital have gotten a little bit more anxious as a result. And so they they want to hedge their bets, so to speak, and they're getting out, which is allowing some of the, the larger institutional owners to come in and get great deals um, because they can play that long game. So just, yeah, if you take that as a jumping off point on the impact of COVID. Yeah, you always see consolidation and downtimes. Um, we're fortunate in multifamily and that, you know, within the pyramid of investment property, we do consider ourselves being at the top of it in terms of essential, of what's considered essential and what isn't. And, you know, I guess my example would be, you know, all these people who aren't going to the office who are working from home, they need a home to work from. And, you know, whether or not, you have ceased getting your hair cut for all of Q2 or whether you had stopped getting your nails done, you still needed a roof over your head every night and a place to sleep. And I think that for most millennials, you know, I graduated college in 2009, I'm 33. And I think that a lot of my colleagues um, and people kind of in the same boat as me are a little younger. This is the second recession that they prospectively lived through, assuming that this actually, you know, becomes a fully blown long-term recession. Obviously, two quarters already passed. It is a recession, but we'll see how long it, it, it lasts for, obviously. We're, we're kind of still hoping for that V-shaped recovery. It doesn't look like it's happening, but it's a different conversation. Um, we, um, we haven't seen a massive devaluation on transaction value. 
Um, we listed a deal that was 31 units in Capitol Hill and, you know, one of the most dense rental markets in Denver. Mid-March, we called it for offers um, at the end of April, I believe, and we closed in June throughout Q2. And that deal traded for, I think, 97% or 96% of what we were whispering the price to be to the market. So that's pretty consistent with where we were at about this time last year. Um, And a lot of private funds and equity groups and people um, that were maybe focusing on a bigger return on what I would call riskier product types are now understanding in a very demonstrable way why multifamily is a little bit tighter on a return basis than, say, a retail deal or an office deal or even a single tenant net lease, Arby's or Walgreens type of a deal. Um, because those tenants can go dark, whereas, you know, at the end of the day, apartment um, units haven't really changed that much in the last 120 years. Um, You've got a kitchen, a bathroom, a bedroom, and hopefully heat and running water. Um, And and that's really, you know, that's, that's made it easy for people who own older vintage deals to retrofit. I sell a lot of 1910, 1930s deals that have new quartz countertops and LVT flooring that have been installed, but they're not going to tear down a beautiful building to replace it with something new. So, you know, I would say that the, the, the runway on owning a multifamily deal is considerably longer than the competing, the competing um, asset classes. Um, and that I don't expect that the footprint of it is going to change that much in the next 50 years. Um, retail and office have been changing at light speed industrial the, the way the industrial warehouse space is laid out and the pivot into vertically, you know, going up more than one floor potentially for a warehouse and distribution center, all of that is very different from where we were even 25 years ago. So multifamily is considered uh, more essential from, you know, the tenant's perspective, but it's also considered safer in the sense that it's slower to change. Um and, it, and it's, it's more likely to remain occupied. Um, there's also considerably more tenants to backfill it um, in that, you know, if you have a 20,000 square foot office space, you need, you know, somebody who can afford 20,000 square feet and also has a workforce to put in there versus, you know, a 600 square foot, one bedroom, one bathroom um, apartment unit in downtown Denver. There's there are thousands of people who are prospective tenants for that unit. So, so all of that has kind of separated us from the pack, I would say, in the last um, throughout this pandemic in the last quarter and a half. Um, and it's brought a lot of people to the table who were previously looking at office and retail and industrial deals. Um, what we've seen conversely happen is that nobody really wanted to test the market in March and April, except for a couple of of brave souls who we're very proud to have shown a very positive return for, as well as showing the market a whole that positive return so that other people are willing to take the plunge and put their deal on the market. Um, But we've seen lesser inventory this year for sure. Um, The buyer pool has gotten smaller, but the buyers that have remained in it are equally as aggressive as they were this time last year, but the seller pool has gotten much smaller, I would say, than the buyer pool, which has kind of allowed us to kind of maintain that value. Um, A lot of people didn't want to risk selling something for less than what the true market value was. 
And I don't know how much time you guys spent looking at debt markets, but in March and even now, um, Fannie and Freddie and most local lenders really tightened their belt in terms of what they were asking for people to um, escrow and what kind of money they needed to put up for deals. So there was a brief period from, I would say, March, the beginning of March, say March 3rd through mid-April or May, um, when nobody really knew up from down and the debt quotes were changing every day at such a pace that it was really hard to keep track of. Um, people who had relationships did killer deals for interest rates that are like below 3%, which is pretty unheard of and fantastic for them. Um, but now that we're kind of out of the gates and all of the people that were thinking that we might see, you know, 10% vacancy hiccups and an increase of 8%, 12% of bad debt of people that couldn't pay their rent, we're just not seeing it, at least not here. Um, and we're very fortunate, you know, in Denver and Colorado to not be an oil and gas town and state anymore. Um, we have tech jobs, we have healthcare insurance, stuff that requires highly skilled labor, which, you know, kind of speaks to the profile of the tenants that we have in multifamily. And it all kind of comes back around, right? So you've got these great tenants you've, and, you know, it continues to feed the beast of just having density and having people to backfill vacant units. You know, I'm talking on a daily basis to at least 10 owners or more. And I would say that of those conversations, I've had maybe two in the last six months or since March, I should say, where people were seeing skips or people that were leaving in the middle of the night were not paying the rent. Everybody else had maybe one or two tenants that came to them hat in hand and said, hey, I want to stay. I love this building. I love being your tenant. I need to work with you on rent, but I will pay you in full. I just need to work out a program. So we've seen a little bit of that. Um, but it's it's been really great. I mean, we've seen market values hold. We've seen um, rent rolls stay strong. The, the rare occasions when tenants do vacate, we're seeing, you know, three to five applicants within a week for those vacant units um, in central Denver. It's been really great. And similar to what happened in 2008, 2009, 2010, there's a massive inflow of people moving here now. And I think the reason for that is if you set aside the economics and job opportunities in the Denver and Colorado market, at the end of the day, if you know the economy washes into the sea, this is a really beautiful, amazing place to live that offers you an incredible variety of things to do with your free time, especially if you enjoy the outdoors and, and athletic endeavors. So, you know, we've seen a lot of people that, you know, if you're 23 and you just graduating college and you don't have the level of job opportunity that you thought you might, or you have no job opportunity at all, okay, well, where other than my parents' basement can I go and live a full, robust life? And a lot of people have been choosing the mountains, have been choosing Denver, have been choosing Boise, Bozeman, Salt Lake City, um, because, you know, other than the gas money or the bus fare or getting on a train, you know, nature's free. Um, and we really have that to our benefit in this market. Well, if the economy goes into the sea, I'm going to live in Reed's basement. So Reed, yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's no room right now. I just put an air hockey table down there and and you can barely walk because all the shit that we had to move around to try and it's just ridiculous. I don't even want to get started on my basement right now, but um, trying to keep my three little girls happy. 
short and long-term holds somewhat, you know, I mean, I'm just carrying over from, from what you just uh, walked us through specific to Denver, since that's where you're an expert, but Dave and I, you know, talk often about all the new construction. And from our perspective, like the impact that has on our clients is, you know, dilution of leads, which, you know, makes things challenging and in a way is good for us because they often have to market a little bit more aggressively in order to, to lease up. Um, but Denver is not a market, you know, that, um, as you said, is having as many challenges uh, finding those applicants when somebody does leave. Um, but my question that is as you look at the last few years, and I think David, like we saw the most new construction, this is across multifamily in 2020, almost times two, uh, and then 19 had set its own record. So, you know, there's been this kind of bull market, you know, this uh, huge spike in uh, new construction. If you've noticed any uh, change or trends, um, of course, trends, but changes to those trends as far as short-term versus long-term holds. So are most of the, like all these new units that are coming on, and of course you'd have to declassify like, um, you know, by or classify by segment. But, you know, we often will hear from owners, it's like, oh, this is a long-term hold. And, you know, most of our portfolio looks like that. But I just didn't know if uh, there's been much change with all this new construction. Are, are a lot of the owners of all this new construction in it for more short-term, long-term, or is it the same as it's been at least as long as you've been in the business, which I, I guess is a decade. That's a great question. Um, that's a great question. It has a lot of it has a lot to do with why I decided to leave my hometown market of Detroit to pivot into brokerage here in Denver is because this is a market where a considerable amount, if not the the, the mass majority of new construction deals that are being built are quote merchant built in that they're being built by a developer who plans to stabilize them, lease them up to 90 plus percent occupancy and then go and sell them, hopefully with us, to the end owner who will either be a long-term owner or hold it for some stated term period, say 10 years, etc. So that is that speaks um, to to directly to why people are offering on new construction, those incentives and those concessions for new tenants is because they really just need butts in the seats. And what you'll see happen is, you know, uh, a new construction deal as they're pre-leasing will offer maybe two months free. And as it opens, once it, they're no longer pre-leasing, they'll start to offer one month free, something like that, or maybe a couple months, you know, where, where we don't charge you for your, your parking or something like that, just to get them in the door. Um, and the reason for that is because, you know, when you're building a deal, you have a certain construction financing that has a maturity date after you complete the construction. And pretty often it's about 90 days after you open for business. You want to be stabilized, quote, stabilized, have enough tenants to be um you know, a viable sale opportunity to be financed and acquired. So that's why you see people like kind of offering the kitchen sink on new construction deals is because they want to get them leased up and they want to get them leased up fast. There are some professional tenants in the market who know how to work that, the ones who travel light and don't necessarily unpack in their unit that much. Um, you know, a couple of Ikea furniture pieces and a mattress is all they need. And you can kind of go from new construction deal to new construction deal and pay, you know, 10 months for a year's worth of rent kind of everywhere you go if you're willing to pick up and move every time that happens. The reason that your long-term holders aren't doing that is because they don't have any, you know, immediate maturity of debt on the horizon that they need, to, that they feel the need to just like get these people in there. And to the point I just made, a lot of time those tenants aren't necessarily the most 
quality in that, you know, as I'm sure that your operators and you guys have, have noticed, you know, the turnover can be an extremely expensive part of, of the operation and ownership of a rental, a residential rental property. Um, and in a perfect world, you want your tenants to be staying more than that initial lease. You want them to stay for 12 months and hopefully renew and continue renewing indefinitely until they have some life event, you know, a wife, kids, second kid just, that just grows them organically out of your space. So that's what your long-term holders are competing with is merchant developers um, who are building and stabilizing property in order to sell it to its ultimate long-term owner. That um, So you just, I guess, answer this, but I was going to ask who's like the, the person that's buying from these short-term, you know, uh, owners, is it typically for the, the long haul or is there one more cycle before it gets, you know, to, to somebody that's going to typically take it for a longer, longer period of time. So I didn't know, like, well, you get it, you know, you have this like race to get it occupied, get it stabilized and sell it. And then there's a second like stage of that cycle before it gets to the long-term hold. But it sounds like you're saying it, it moves directly, directly over. Either or, I mean, it could go either way. You know, once you've got a fully stabilized new construction deal that's ready to be sold, um, assuming that it's like one of those highly amenitized class A, you know, the pool and the grill area and the gym and like a parking structure and all of that good stuff. Uh, hopefully Terrence and Shane on my team are the brokers that are selling it. And typically they're selling those deals to institutional bodies because they're the only groups that have the available capital to take that size deal down. Institutional groups tend to have a stated hold period, be it seven or 10 years or five years or what have you. Um, in the private capital market, it's it's much more of a spread, I would say. Um, I would say it probably goes about 50-50 into people who are looking to um, buy something to add the value to, you know, upgrade it in some way, shape or form and recapitalize by selling it on the back end. Or, um, you know, the other half is people that are looking for somewhere to um, park capital on a long term basis in exchange for the cash flow. And again, keeping in mind that at least in our own minds, multifamily is at the top of the investment pyramid for commercial property. Other than moving from one apartment to another apartment, we don't see people trade out of deals to go and move on to, say, buy an institutional deal. So we do see a lot of cash parkers, a lot of people that are looking to develop generational wealth who just want you know, to know that they have something to give the kids and who understand that it's easier to transfer property to the next generation than to you know, get hit with a massive estate tax trying to transfer some lump sum of cash to them. So we do see a pretty fair mix um, of both, for sure. Cool. Makes sense. David. Well, I know. Uh, yeah, I know we're almost out of time here, Ryan. I told you I wanted to get either one of your hot takes or something because I know you're you're full of them. Um, so, um, whether you want to hit a hot take that you have, or whether you want to just if there's some other last words or something that we didn't get to, uh, you know, I'll let you hit it. Yeah, let me think about that for a second. I, I've kind of been thinking about that all week. I think that. You know, the first hot take is not, it shouldn't be news to anybody who owns and operates, but I think the availability of debt in commercial real estate is the key to everything in our world. It's, it's really the light switch of whether deals are, are on or off. And we've kind of seen that in our, our neighboring asset classes. We've seen that it's considerably more difficult to get financing on retail today, on office today than institutional today. 
Then on multifamily, which is kind of what is the grand separator between how we're weathering this recession and how those asset classes are. Um, and I would recommend to anybody who's listening today um, that if they're thinking about you know a new acquisition or doing something from a buyer's side, um, the first call you should probably make is to your preferred lender to get a snapshot of whether or not it's something that you're actually capable of doing and to get an idea of what the financing looks like. So that's probably um, soft hot take. That's warm take number one. Um, <laughs> Um, I would say my, my hottest take, I kind of already gave you earlier, which is that we as, as sellers brokers, um, have seen the role of buyers agents and buyers representatives really dwindle and diminish, um, in the last, however long since, um, everything become more, became more readily available online. And we do, you know, we're obviously happy to provide access to anybody, whether they're represented or not. But if you have a seller and a seller's agent that are trustworthy, honorable market representatives, and you know how to underwrite financials, and you know how to go after evaluating a deal, I would suggest that having a LoopNet registration or a CoStar um, subscription will take you farther um, than having a buyer's rep. And I further... Um, say that if you are looking to buy a deal in a certain market, to go online, try to identify the top five or six major brokerage firms in that market who seem to do a major you know, quantity of transaction volume. And I would reach out to each individual office, tell them who you are, what you're trying to do, and do your best to stay in touch with them at least once a quarter with every office so that you are interacting directly with the people who are right at that key decision point of whether or not a deal is coming soon. Because a lot of the time, if somebody's keeping in touch with me from the buyer's role and they're keeping in direct touch with me, I'll tell them what I have coming two months from now, maybe six months from now, so that they can start, kind of start to make a plan. If they're, say, you know, a little bit slower moving or a little bit newer to the process, I can kind of do things to warm them up. Um, and give them a little bit of advanced runway as long as we kind of understand one another and they are capable of doing what they say and saying what they do. Um, and finally, I, you know, the, the only other hot take I have is um, is be wary of, um, as an investor, of all of those, quote, new product types within residential rentals, um, the co-living, the short-term rentals, all of that has really been hit extremely hard um, by COVID and by the pandemic and by our inability to sit next to each other in this day and age. So, you know, I, I would um, be very cautious um, of looking at those kinds of investment types. Um, and we're hopeful that people that have kind of pivoted into that will come back to us in the traditional rental world um, because ultimately um, providing permanent housing for, is better for a market than providing, you know, people who are coming into town for a couple of weeks with a, with a pseudo hotel room to stay in. And Denver and Colorado do have um, more tenants than we have units, and we do have a housing shortage for sure. And I would argue that um, temporary housing has um, affected that, not, not, in a, not in a major way, but I, I do look forward 
to hopefully seeing some of those units that have been Airbnb pivot back to being true long-term rental properties, for sure. Yeah, well, that's super interesting. It's basically read, you know, that underwater swing set community that you were looking at. Uh, I think you should pass on is what Ryan's saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'd like to say, I mean, as we somewhat are wrapping up here, I, I, I like to think I'm, I'm not easily impressed, but um, I often laugh at myself because when I had a stint in pharmaceuticals, uh, suddenly my IQ to my network like skyrocketed because I was talking about <laughs> neurology and, you know, uh, you know, whatever endocrinology is like, wow, this is incredible. But that being said, seriously, Ryan, you are a fountain of information. I'm super impressed. I very much would, uh, wholeheartedly recommend you to our ownership groups, uh, especially here, here in this, uh, in our backyard, um, in Denver. Um, it's going to flatter me. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Um, let me, uh, ask you about volume of deals. We, uh, when we talked to one of our, well, kind of, I don't want to say our favorite client, but certainly one of our bigger clients, um, out on the East coast, they're one of the fastest growing third party management companies out there. And I was, we were doing a, a segment um, focused on kind of the, the deal, the, the presentation that they, you know, how they approach it. And we got into um, just how many, like, what's the close rate look like? How often um, are you pitching? And so have to ask you the same question. Um, I don't know if that's changed much. Uh, as you said, things slow down a little bit in uh, March and April, but um, what what's the average number of deals? You mentioned you're usually talking to 10 owners on a regular basis, but in a given calendar year. Oh, gosh, it, it really varies. Um, I would say we probably sell, I mean, my team alone, just, just the four-man group that I'm on, just looking at us, we probably sell, I would say, um, four to six deals a quarter, I would say, something like that. So so one plus deal or new opportunity per month, about. Um, obviously, it comes in waves, and sometimes you'll have you know a quiet quarter, and then you'll close four deals in October, sort of a deal. But um, our... You know, just kind of, I, I guess, speaking more in terms of trends, our transaction volume has remained pretty strong, but it's definitely probably about 70% of what it was this time last year. Um, and a lot of that is because, you know, we just came out of one of the longest prolonged economic upturns in history. And a lot of people saw the writing on the wall in between 2017 and 19, where we were kind of in that like bonus period where we were outside of the typical seven year um, rise and fall of the economy. Um, a lot of people made the jump to sell knowing kind of where they were at. And I think similarly, Q2 this year, we saw a big pullback and obviously that will affect our annual number. But this summer has been as busy as last summer. Um, we've spent a lot of time advising and working on, you know, stuff that maybe won't see the market until 2021, but we're just as busy as we've ever been for sure. That's great. Uh, I follow up to that is the composition of those deals. And I think you've already kind of covered that pretty well, but you know, for, I'll just say, and don't take this, David used to be like, I don't ever call me a salesperson. I'm not, I don't really see myself that way, but, but, um, you know, speaking at large, salespeople have to be, you know, adaptable, right, to, to the climate, to the environment. And so they're always working, you know, the bigger deals, or at least you're supposed to, right, have a nice balance in that pipeline. Um, and then that can change quite a bit given, you know, the climate. So didn't know if, if that's happened a whole lot for you where it's like, 
you know, typically in those four to six deals, this is what, you know, that that would compose, but I'm having to play a different game, at least in 2020. And then I can see, you know, kind of a return to normalcy in, in 2021. You know, we're very fortunate in that we really haven't had to do a ton of that. We, we all held our breath in March and April, but I think after we got, you know, three, four months of, of rent tracking info through the National Multifamily Housing Council and, and additional national bodies who are tracking that kind of information, and that data came back pretty rosy, I think everybody nationwide in multifamily investment sales breathe the collective sigh of relief um, and and kept moving forward as is. Now, you know, people are more cautious. And obviously, if I were to try to sell people the same uh, pro forma that I was trying to sell this time last year and promising somebody that, you know, they're going to start realizing 3% year over year rent increases just out of the gate like that. It's just not realistic anymore. So the way that we've really re-geared ourselves isn't necessarily in, in the way that we carry ourselves, but in the way that we are reasonably underwriting and evaluating deals. Um, and we're trying to be conservative on, on our end. We obviously want to make sure that we're getting you know, top dollar and every possible cent for our selling clients. But at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, you can't do a deal without at least one buyer who thinks that they're getting a good opportunity. And typically, a good deal is made by creating a little bit of leverage in the buyer pool. And typically, you need two or three good qualified buyers in order to do that. So we've been fortunate in that we've continued to see that many or more people looking at all of our deals. Um, We've also seen um, that because, you know, there's less inventory nationwide on the market, we've got a lot of people signing confidentiality agreements just to keep their analysts busy and underwriting new deals. So not to say that they're looky-loos, but we definitely have a lot of eyes on our property who are, I would say, just kind of trying to understand where we're at, that we know aren't necessarily real buyers um, who just kind of want to understand and want to continue to keep their their analysts um, employed and working. So, you know, we're grateful for those people. If they want to talk to us, even if not buyers, just to kind of understand the market, we're always happy to chat with them. And um, yeah, we've been really fortunate here in Denver and throughout the Rockies and that we haven't seen any massive hiccups other than in March, April. That's great. Well, Ryan, thanks uh, so much for coming on. I wouldn't be surprised if we have to have you back at some point to speak more directly about the market and what's going on. I know you have a lot of insight into policies and um, uh, I don't know, initiatives that are happening in, in in the area that we're not privy to with most of our clients being out, out of the area. So anyways, this was super educational for myself personally. So thanks for coming on. Likewise, this has been a ton of fun. And yeah, I'd love to come back sometime, chat about something a little different. Yeah.